Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Um, but good morning, we want to welcome you to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing faith, building community, and in the hope of Jesus. And so today we are continuing with our series, our journey through the Bible uh, from Genesis to Revelation. This is our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And through this series, we explore some of the major and minor stories and, and writings of the Bible. And we call it the unexpected narrative of Jesus because we may at times forget that every story and every page in the Bible serves to this, this singular purpose of pointing us both to God and to the work that Jesus does for us. And so as we dive into these different books and stories and and writings, we begin to unravel this carefully crafted tapestry that demonstrates this tremendous love of God, this love of Jesus that is written through every page and through every generation, through every age and every moment of history of God's people in the Bible. And so today we are moving on from the book of Ecclesiastes. We concluded the book of Ecclesiastes two weeks ago. Uh, And so today we're moving on to the final of our wisdom literature books called the Song of Songs. And so the Song of Songs, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is a book of love poetry. It was written presumably by Solomon and it explores the love journey of two lovers, of Solomon and his beloved, the Shulamite uh, woman. And it's actually just been recently in the last century or so that our Archaeologists have discovered that this type of literature is actually not too rare. Um, we, used to, we used to think that it was very strange that the Bible would include such uh, love poetry, but it's actually been in the couple of uh, the last century or so that they've discovered other texts from other uh, regions and other civilizations that actually include uh, extensive love poetry. And so this type of poetry, this focus on love and the journey of two lovers is actually pretty common back in that day for people to write about. And so there are a couple of different approaches and different ways to view the Song of Songs And we can spend quite a few weeks talking about uh, some of the more practical aspects of the book, but we've actually done that uh, just two years ago. And so uh, I don't want to spend too much in our current series kind of going over all of that again. If you do want to to listen to that, to our sermon series from a couple of years ago, we covered some of the Song of Songs in our series called The Mingling of Souls, and it's available on our YouTube page if you want to go back and listen to that. In that series, we dive into sex and relationships and cover some of kind of what Song of Songs talks about and how the love poetry applies to our own romantic uh, relationships. But for for our purposes for this series, uh, we're just going to look at Song of Songs in a thematic sense and into kind of how the the theme of the book and the love poetry applies to us. And so we're only going to spend one one sermon on this uh, because I I do want to let you go read the practical aspects on your own or kind of listen to it on your own as well. Uh, But we're going to be looking at the thematic aspects of Song of Songs today. Uh, And so uh, we're starting uh, today with, with Song of Songs before we move on to Isaiah next week. Uh, but Song of Songs, basically the theme of Song of Songs is love. That's the whole theme of the book, right? It is a reflection on human love and intimacy. 
It explores this deep and passionate expression of love between a man and a woman, but it goes further than that because on the surface, we can read this love poetry and we can read it as simply the courtship of Solomon and his beloved. We may read it as the indulgence of the expression of, of marital sexual intimacy, but the, but the Bible and the book is also a celebration of the capacity for intimacy that God created for humanity. It's not just this romantic love between two lovers. It's an intimacy that is not only expressed expressed in earthly relationships, but it's an intimacy that extends into the heavens. That's what the, the poetry portrays. It's an intimacy that we can have with our creator. And so love in, in the poetry of Song of Psalms is this, is this passionate and self-renewing gift from God. And this love not only serves to kind of heighten our senses and to create uh, f- familiarity and, 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 and familial relationships and community, but this love also points us back to this divine love that God has for us. A love that much of the Bible shows will one day restore us and bring us back into perfection, back into this undivided community, into this, into this presence with God with no separation whatsoever, back into the state of the garden that we find in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And so much of the wisdom literature kind of demonstrates this, this love of God that is returning us back to life in the garden. So today we're starting off our reading with Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 14. Song of Songs, uh, Song of Songs chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, and so verse 14 starts like this. It says, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places of the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. And verse 16, she responds, my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. Chapter three, verse one. All night long, she continues, on my bed, I looked for the one that my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I will get up now and I will go about the city through the streets and through the squares. I will search for the one that my heart loves. So I looked for him, but I did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made the rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and I would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. So Solomon speaks first in our, in our reading here, and he's searching for his beloved. Right? He says, I want to see your face, for your face is lovely. I want to hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. And so he calls out to his beloved, but the beloved, we read later on, also calls out to him. She begins to, to call out to him, and she says at the end of chapter 2, she says, come swiftly like a gazelle or like a young stag. And in chapter 3, she says, I long for him, I search for him. And so she gets out of bed, she's dreaming about him, literally. And she gets out of bed and she goes and she searches for him in the city, among the city square. She goes through the the streets. She goes out crying out, asking the watchmen of the night, asking them if they had seen the one that her heart loves. And and upon, upon finding him, she embraces him. She holds him tight and she never lets him go. And so throughout the Song of Songs, we see this reciprocal love between the lover and the beloved between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. And both spend, throughout the poetry, a considerable amount of time and energy searching for the other. Both both have this love that is not dormant 
or stagnant, but a love that is vivacious, that is energetic, that is bold, that is active. And in Proverbs, uh, we, we see Solomon using this analogy to compare the pursuit of wisdom, wisdom being the love of God, the fear of God, the obe- obedience to his commandments, living well, that's what wisdom is. And so Solomon says pursuing wisdom is like pursuing a noble, virtuous woman. It's like courting a noble, vir- virtuous woman. And so we can find the same idea thematically portrayed in the Song of Songs. We can read this poetry as a beautiful expression of human divine or human romantic love, but we can also read it as a search for divine love as a search for wisdom, for God. And no matter what role we we find ourselves in in this poetry, whether we see ourselves as Solomon, as the lover pursuing the good woman, like Proverb puts it, or whether we see ourselves as the bride of Christ, being sought after by Christ the groom, like the Gospels later see it, we find something beautiful in this love poetry. And that's our first lesson today. Our first lesson is this, love searches for us. See, throughout the love poetry, of Song of Songs, it's not just one party that is going out searching for the other. It's not a one-sided love. Both parties are diligently, deliberately, desperately searching for each other. Both parties are pursuing each other in love. See, every human being has ingrained in them a desire to love and to be loved. And whether it's in romantic relationships between lovers and spouses, whether it's in familial relationships between siblings, parents, or other family members, whether it's with, with our friends, the people that we decide to surround ourselves, we all strive to love and be loved. We're all searching for love. We're all searching to give love, to receive love. But it's not just humanity that yearns for love. It is also God who yearns for love. You see, perfect love is expressed in community, in plurality. You cannot love by yourself, right? You cannot love by yourself. You need others to love. The very nature of love requires another. And this is evident in the doctrine of the Trinity, this triune, plural nature of God that expresses and receives loves in its own plurality is evident in the creation story found in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when God looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone, so he creates the other, the reciprocal, the Eve, the woman, so that love can be expressed, given, and received. You see, love expresses itself in community among others. And we find in the Bible, the Bible says that God is love. And so God is expressed in community. And what we find in the love poetry of the Song of Songs is that there is a mutual passion and desire for each other. There's a desperate longing and an active searching that happens on both ends. And so we find too, that it's not just us who may be searching for God at times in our lives, but it is God who is searching for us. He goes out into the streets and he calls out. He is looking high and low for his beloved. He is looking for each and every one of us. You see, God does not sit far away, enthroned in some heavenly throne room, distant from humanity. No, God is out there. God is here looking for us. He is searching not just to be loved, but to give love, to love us. You see, God is working in the world around us so that each of us, so that his creation, the creation that he holds so dear, might find itself in loving relationship that is communion with God. In fact, God didn't just love and and, and search for us. God literally came down to earth in human form. He literally came down in the personhood of Jesus so that he could obliterate the division that is caused between us 
and our creation. See, Jesus came in love, searching for us, so that through love, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection and his death, that death and the grave might be completely defeated and our sins forgiven. See, so much of our human desires have a searching to love and be loved, but there is also a divine love that is searching for us. There is a God who is tearing down walls, who is removing barriers, who is toppling all kingdoms and powers and entities that get in the way of our relationship with him. See, God loves us. God is love. And love searches for us. So we jump to the end of the poetry of Song of Songs. Song of Songs, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Uh, we see that she is, she, is, she is speaking now, the beloved. She says, If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Verse four, this, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. We kind of cover that in the mingling of souls. So if you want to know more about that, go to, go to that series. But in the beginning of the conclusion of this poetry here in songs, uh, Song of Songs chapter eight, she says, I wish you were like my brother who had nursed alongside me at my mother's breast. And it's kind of weird, right? Song of Songs is weird. There's a lot of weird stuff that goes in it. But she doesn't say that she romantically loves her brother. That's not what she's saying. She doesn't say that she wished she romantically loved her brother. She's saying that she, she wishes that she had met this love of her life much earlier. She says, I wish I had known you. If I had known the love that we could have between each other, I wish that I had known you from the very beginning of time. And she says, I wish that I had known you and loved you since birth. Spent every waking hour together without the suspicious looks and judgments that people often give when two young people are, are, who aren't related are spending time together alone. That's really what she's saying. She says, I wish I had known you from the very beginning of time. And she continues in verse 6. She says, place me like a seal over your heart like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all of the wealth of one's house for love, love would be utterly scorned. So here she proclaims, our love is eternal. Our love is never ending. Our love is unyielding. And she says that, that the love for her, that she has for this man, that she, the love that she has for this lover is so wonderful that she wishes not only would it last into the future, into all of eternity, that it would have begun long ago as well. She wishes that this present love that she experienced would extend further into the past and even much further into the future. And she says that she says, love is as strong as death, unyielding as the grave, burning like a blazing fire that cannot be quenched by many waters. And she says this like a mighty flame. At least that's what we read in the English here, in the New, New International Version. But what she literally says, she says this, she says that love's power, love's ardor, love's radiant heat is like the flame or like the fire of Yah. That's literally the wording she, she uses. She says like the fire of Yah, like the very flame of Yahweh, she says. 
So we see in the Old Testament, she's referring to a lot of different things. In the Old Testament, Yahweh appears as fire multiple times. Yahweh shows up as this burning bush for Moses, so brilliant that Moses saw it from the very bottom of the mountain, so holy that Moses had to take off his sandals before he could even approach the flame. And Yahweh shows up again in this blazing fire in Exodus that covers the entire mountain of Sinai as he gives these commandments to Moses, a fire so blazing hot that the people couldn't even come near it. God said, set a perimeter because this fire is so hot that anyone who comes near it might face death. And then Yahweh again shows up on the fire on Mount Carmel in response to Elijah's prayer, this fire so blazing hot that it obliterates the rocks and the sacrifice that were soaked in gallons and gallons and gallons of water. See, God has shown up in this supernatural, this all-powerful flame, and this is the flame that the poet compares love to. She's saying not just our love. She's not just saying the love that we have, but she says love in general, love is as blazing hot as the flame of Yahweh, a flame of Yahweh that cannot be extinguished, a flame that shines through the darkness, a flame that burns through death and the grave and continues to keep on burning. And here's what we find in our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this love is stronger than death. Love is this transcendent power. Love is the strongest force in the universe. Love transcends time and space. Love can bridge the the, the span of distances. It can hold out the test of time. We can hold on to people. We can hold love for people even after they're gone. We can hold love for people who aren't in this room, who might not even be in this continent even. Love inspires us to great feats. Wars are fought over love. People give their lives for love of their country or love of others. See, love cannot be overcome by death. It cannot be quenched by rushing water, she says, with the depths of the sea. Love cannot be drowned out by darkness or swallowed up by the grave. Love in itself is an eternal flame. And we find in the Bible that it says God is love. And so love is the very flame of Yahweh. It is the passion and the burning and the holy brilliance of the Creator. And this love that God has towards us is not the kind of love that waxes and wanes, the kind of love that increases and decreases over time, over actions, over deeds. God's love for us is not a response to physical proximity. It is not a response to time spent together. It is not a response to our good deeds. God's love for us is entirely independent of anything that we do. Did you hear that? God's love for you is entirely independent of anything that you do. This passionate, this burning, this all-consuming, unquenchable love is constant and consistent. It does not change. It does not diminish. It does not take a break. And Paul talks about this love of God in Romans chapter 8, when he says that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither powers on heaven or on earth or in all of creation can separate us from this love of God. You see, God never changes in how much he loves you. He has, does, and always will love you. It is who he is. His love is deeply embedded. It is intertwined into God's glory. Because as great and as powerful and as holy as our God is, so too is God's love for us. In fact, his love is so strong that it completely shattered the bonds of death. 
His love is so strong that it drove Jesus, the embodiment of God's glory and love in human form, to selflessly give up his life for us. You see, Jesus could not stand to be separated us, separated from us by sin, and so he submitted his life to the grave to be a sacrifice for us. His love was so strong, his holiness so powerful that he broke through death's power to unite us to him once and for all. See, the poet says that love is as strong as death, but love is not just as strong as death. Love is stronger than death. The love that Jesus laid down his life in and conquered death and sin was all for our sake. God did all of that all because God so loved the world. Because God so loved the world. So Song of Songs, we keep reading in verse 7 of chapter 8. says, many waters, again, cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. So we jump down to verse 11. Solomon, it says, had a vineyard in Baal Haman. He led out his vineyard to tenants. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But mine own vineyard, she says, is mine to give. Those thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and 200 are for those who tend its fruits. But my vineyard, she says, is mine to give. Verse 13, he responds, you who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. And she responds, the final verse in chapter eight, the final verse in the book, she says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. See, she says, love ceases to be love if it is taken or coerced. That's why the woman says, my vineyard is mine to give. Because love cannot be taken, of course. It's mine to give. And some may come and pay for its fruit. She says, some may attempt to earn it by giving lavish gifts and extravagant demonstrations. But at the end of all of that, love can only be given, not taken or bought. So here's our final lesson. Our final lesson today is this. Love is a choice. It is not purchased. It is not earned. It cannot be demanded, monopolized, owned, or owed. Love is a gift freely given. And so too is the nature of God's love for us. The love that God offers, the love that he is, is not purchased or earned. No amount of philanthropic giving, no amount of pious service, no amount of good deeds could ever put you in a position to earn, demand, or purchase God's love. See, God's love is his to freely give. And we find in the Bible that he does freely give it. He gives it lavishly. He gives it without conditions. He gives it without limits. He gives it without exceptions. That's the God of the Bible, the God who longs to enter into relationship with us. That is who Jesus is, a God who gives love lavishly and freely. And you see the the, the poem kind of ends differently than we might expect. Because if you're familiar with these romantic comedies or these Hallmark movies, you might think that a story might end with the lovers kind of embracing at the end, right? Most stories of love end that way. And you'd expect the story to end in some happily ever after where the protagonists finally embrace in happiness and union for all of eternity, but that's actually not the case here. That doesn't happen in the Song of Songs. Let's read verse 13 and 14. Again, it should be available for you. It says, he says, Listen to the words because it kind of paints a picture that they're not together yet. They're not together right now. They're separated. Verse verse 13, he says, You who dwell in the gardens with friends and attendants, let me hear your voice. He's calling out to her. 
And she says, come away, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. See, the poetry doesn't end with the two embracing happily. It ends with this man calling out, let me hear your voice. And she responds to him and says, come swiftly, come quickly, just like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. And, and, and are they together in the end? They're not, not quite yet. The poem doesn't end with the two lovers being united, but rather the poem ends with an invitation. It says, come, come and embrace this love. It's an invitation to respond to love. It, it, it ends with the choice to respond. Love is a choice. But what's particularly intriguing about this passage is that verse 14 isn't the first time that she says this. If you remember, I know this was long ago at the very beginning of the sermon. If you remember in chapter two, she says the very same thing. Chapter two, verse 17. Should be available for you there. Chapter two, verse 17, she says this, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, you're seeing it, right? She says, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle like a young stag on the rugged hills. See, chapter two and chapter eight, both are invitations for the lover to come swiftly. But in, in the, first, the first reading in chapter two, she says this, like a young stag on the rugged hills. Well, in chapter eight, she says, like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Chapter two's rugged hills is the Hebrew hare bether, which means mountain of division or separation. And in chapter 8, this spice-laden mountain is the Hebrew hare besem, which means spice mountain. And spice in the Song of Songs is often used as a symbol for the fragrance and the beauty of the expression of unity and love. So at the beginning of the poetry, we find that, that love is not yet fully realized. They are separate. They are apart. They are on the rugged hills. They are hare bether. But now here at the end, in chapter 8, there is no division. There is no separation. Love is freely and fully expressed without barriers or division. And see, the beautiful part of the story of the Bible is that Jesus has done away with those barriers. He's done away with any possible division. See, the shadow of death, of sin that hangs over us, Jesus has done away with that. The threat of the grave is no longer present. We are no longer divided from God. We are no longer separated from him because of our sin, because of the work that Jesus has done on the cross. See, in the beginning, the lover calls out, come quickly, even though we are divided. In the end, the lover says, come quickly. There's no longer any division. This is the story of the Bible. Jesus says, I long to enter into relationship with you. I long to be in communion with you. But there is a division that is created by sin. And then Jesus comes in the story of the gospels. And now he says, come quickly for that division is gone. There's no separation anymore. There's no barriers. I'm gonna invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. You see, through the cross, Jesus has brought justice and forgiveness. Jesus has wiped the slate clean and nothing that we could do would ever extinguish his love for us. And you see, the poem ends with an invitation. And Jesus extends that same invitation to us to respond to his love with our love because love is a choice. And we get to choose how we respond to God's call of love. You see, love is not passive. It is not passe. It is not indifferent. It is out there desperately searching for us. 
You see, it calls out in the streets. It searches through the city. You see, love searches for us. In the love poetry of Song of Songs, both parties, they're looking for each other desperately. And in relationship with God, it is not just humanity that longs for a Savior. It is the Savior who longs for us too. See, God moves heaven and earth. God conquers death and the grave, all to love this broken and fallen humanity. See, God leaves the 99 behind to find the one that is lost. And love is this eternal, inextinguishable flame. It is the very flame of Yahweh. And love is stronger than death. Love cannot be bound or restrained. Its light cannot be drowned out by darkness. Its flame cannot be quenched by many waters. Its life cannot be stolen by the grave. God's love is far stronger than the grave. In fact, it conquered it. God's love is laid down through his life to redeem you and I. But God did not lay down his life to force us to choose him. No, love is a choice. Jesus has removed the barriers. He's removed the, the separation that is caused by sin. Jesus has made it possible for us to completely immerse ourselves in communion and relationship with our creator. But the call is out there. The poem doesn't end with the two lovers united. The poem ends with this invitation. So our story is the same. There is an invitation. See, God doesn't rope us in with this threat of damnation and hellfire. God doesn't demand love or else, but rather God removes the barriers. God removes the division. God removes anything standing in the way between us and him. And he says, come. He extends the invitation. And the story of the Bible teaches us that we get to respond, that we get to choose to give love back through our actions, through our deeds, through the way that we relate with others in our community, through the way that we express the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus all around us, we get to determine how we respond to this invitation, this reckless and boundless and limitless love of God. This God that leaves the 99 behind all to save you. Amen.